This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrain Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Switcheroo Buy-In. Ronald Hutton's The Witch. Building the King in Yellow Mythos. And Game of Thrones. Over the Edge, the twisted RPG of counterculture conspiracy, weird science, and urban danger. Reimagined for its third edition by its original creator, Jonathan Tweet, for a new generation of role players. New narrative rules improve storytelling. New character traits propel drama. Every conspiracy, every character, and every location is given a fresh new twist. The Edge is the weirdest city in the world. Get into trouble. Question your place in the crazed multiverse. Take a draft of madness. Transcend mortal limits. Fight a baboon! Along the way, you might find out who really controls humanity. Unless, of course, you've been working for them all along. Fast dramatic character creation, laser focused on creating dynamic protagonists. A simple 2 die 6 resolution mechanic. Inject shocking unexpected outcomes through good twists, bad twists, and twist ties. Three strikes and you're dead. But until you're risking that third strike, you can safely take big risks, electrifying gameplay with dramatic, exciting moments. Plan your trip to the island you only think you remember by visiting at Atlas-games.com slash over the edge. Or follow the link in the show notes. Please remember Liberty is job one. Disarmament means peace. It's polite to speak English. And of course, paranormal activity is perfectly legal. Thank you for your consent. The rattle of dice, the thump of miniatures, the crunch of Doritos, and the benevolent gaze of Peter Frampton coming alive welcome us once more to the shag-carpeted confines of the gaming hut, but what's that? The dice are actually a metronome. The miniatures are macratures. Peter Frampton has been replaced by some sort of supergroup, perhaps Asia or Europe, <laughs> and in fact, the shag-carpeting is, it's Lilolium. This is a switcheroo, Robin, and I won't have it. Yes. Yes, if you if your campaign is turned into a supergroup named after a continent, uh, it's a bad sign. Pull the ripcord. Yes, as indeed Ross Ireland, beloved Patreon backer Ross Ireland, asks, how would a GM get buy-in for a game where a surprise switcheroo is intended? For example, an F twenty game where the PCs learn they are actually Westworld style androids. Is there a good way to preserve surprise without betraying player expectations? And I guess the question goes to both of us. So, Robin, why don't you answer the question? This is a theme that we've uh, yeah. got on our questions that were asked on the show. This is sort of the Ken and Robin equivalent of people writing into advice columnists to ask if they were justified in throwing a tantrum at a wedding or right. uh, is it okay if I cheat on my spouse? Uh, but uh, in this, in both of those cases, that, of course, applies to a dark instinct, whereas this, of course, is all about trying to entertain your players with an exciting switcheroo. And the question is, as always with these buy-in questions, the first thing you'd ask yourself is, do the players actually want to play this as much as you want to run it? And, of course, the difficulty with a, a switcheroo or uh, uh, perhaps an unhappy player might think pig-in-a-poke campaign yes. is that you can't tell ahead of time uh, whether they wish to be tricked or not. Um, right. And expectations and and the expectations of the audience is going to be a theme that we will pick up again 
uh, later in this podcast. Um, so uh, I guess the first item would be have the absolute trust of your players who are willing to play anything they run because everything you run they think is brilliant and uh, they are perfectly yes. happy to be right. uh, given a, a 180, a major curveball. Begin and, by earning that trust by never running a bad campaign ever. Yes. <laughs> never <laughs> disappointing your players in, in any way or challenging their expectations. I certainly, uh, I think I'm a good GM, but I've certainly on a regular basis wind up challenging the expectations of my uh, players. Uh, and so uh, I would not run a total switcheroo on them. My my model is more the white witch with the box of Turkish delight. It's like, no, have as much Turkish delight as you like. Oh, now we're fat and indolent and evil. Oh, golly. <laughs> Who saw that coming? Nobody. <laughs> but that's the obvious part, right? Is yeah. uh, question why you want to do this and whether the players would actually enjoy it. But let's say uh, that you think they will enjoy it. And the question is, how do you pitch it to them? And I would uh, suggest... Uh, that once again, the best surprises are surprises we expect and are happy to get. Uh, we might not know exactly like present. what the surprise is, but we know there's a surprise. So I would say that you telegraph that by uh, saying uh, uh, this is a, a campaign in which things are not what they seem. So you're not going to catch them absolutely flat-footed, uh, but you are going to indicate to them that they should be ready for... Uh, a big uh, uh, rug being pulled out from them in session two or three or whenever it is that you plan to uh, to do that. Uh, because, of course, uh, and that will give the players the option of then when they're designing, say, for in this example, their uh, bard and their or their uh, cleric or what have you, they don't necessarily, they know not to devote the same amount of inve emotional investment and think in their heads, well, here's the 12-episode story arc I've always wanted to run with a bard, and I want to carefully create all of this uh, character dynamics and everything, and I, oh, yeah, this is going to be the ultimate bard campaign so that they don't get their hopes up in the wrong direction, you know. You know, this is going to be F20, and it's a twist. So they don't know what the twist is. They don't know they're going to turn out to be androids, but they know that something is going to be up and that they should look for that something so that they will feel clever when they spot the clues that you cleverly leave for them before you um, do the big reveal. Right. When you, I mean, and that's another part of it is that the big reveal should be telegraphed within the game so that there is, if not a chance to foresee it. And in session one, the paladin says, I think we're all robots. At least in session one, the paladin's like, Hmm, the footprints of those orcs are all very regular. Ranger, does those, do those look right? Yes, they're, they're identical. In fact, that's weird. What's going on with these orcs? And then only later do they realize, oh, it's because the orcs are mass produced in a, in a cavern somewhere, but not in the regular orc way, in a gross robot way. Whenever we stop for our, our rest to, to regain our spells, I don't, I don't remember it all that well. Right. Yes. There's a, and, 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 and some of that, you know, leans into the conventions because obviously in, in an F20 game, you don't remember the rest. There is no segment where you're sitting around the campfire telling stories and you, and that's something like where a TV show says, you know, plays with a cut and the cut actually indicates that something bad has happened in between scene one and scene two. And you can do the same thing in role-playing, playing with the medium that way. But again, uh, I think uh, you're right that foreshadowing it, at least, leaving clues within the fiction, is at least it's the least you should be doing. I would also add, don't count on a long campaign. If you're planning a switcheroo, the emotional high for you, the GM, is going to happen right after the switcheroo. 
And if you're like, well, I really, the only part I cared about was the paladin discovering he was an android. And now I have to do an android story forever. And now I'm an HBO showrunner who hates my show. Speaking of foreshadowing. <laughs> Speaking of foreshadowing. But it's, it's all prestige cable. Don't, don't look that way, Amazon Prime. Don't get smug on me. And so there's, uh, the, the goal should be that figuring out you're an android and then discovering you're an android and then one big android adventure thing that sort of pays off you being an android instead of, ha ha, your powerless magic isn't real. It was all nanotech, blah, blah, blah. I mean, that's, that's mean and boring, uh, which is the wrong defecta for a game, by the way. And so <laughs> it should be, you know, a big cool adventure where, oh, because you are a paladin android, your programming helps you, you know, do the right thing and pull the right lever. Or because you are a bard android, you, um, uh, can plug into the, into the sound system on the um, amusement park and, and do things with your bard powers and make it fun and cool for the players to have been uh, as you implied, given a gift, the gift of being an android instead of the gift of being a garbage bard. And so it, it's a shock and a surprise, but it's also a present in the sense of, oh, what, what cool android things can we do? And then it ends before they get mad that they had worked up this energy for an F20 campaign. And then you can, at the end of the, of the cool robot reveal session or adventure, you say, well, that was fun, guys. I have one more. Uh, or three more robot adventures if you want to keep with these characters. Or we can go back to the characters before they became androids and we can do either prequel adventures or adventures that are set in fantasy Westworld and you play characters who don't know whether they're androids or bards and have a, a, a weird... Do you want to be Joe Pantoliano and just enjoy the steak? Just enjoy the steak. Here's right, that option. A, but, but you could add sort of a level of psychological, um, uh, psychological detective, uh, what would it go? Existential detective role playing to our standard fantasy. If that's an ingredient that you think is fun. Or now we can play the game of airship pirates that, um, uh, Chandra wanted to play. And, uh, I said, no, we're going to run this cool fantasy game. So now we're going to play airship pirates like everyone wanted to. And thanks for playing my cool Westworld game. Wait till you see what I've got in mind for airship pirates. It's, it's going to be awesome. Um, and I, I did lie slightly when I said that I've never pulled a switch or indicate that I've never pulled a switch for real players because I did once as part of an adventure that I wrote for a mage linked adventure book. Uh, and it's called, uh, the book is Reign of the Exarchs. And so I followed the rule of always make the thing that you are leaving behind the, the prior identity less interesting than what you turn out to be. Right. And in this case, I ran a regular mage campaign for a little while, and then everyone showed up to a game, and it's like, okay, now you're all people in this uh, drab uh, suburb uh, outside the city, and you just have dull quotidian lives, and we're just going to do this for a while. And I do sort of have that contract with the players because they know that I have to play test things, so sometimes... They are willing to be very tolerant and, and do things that I would not necessarily foist on them if we were just totally running for everybody's enjoyment without right. my needing to test stuff. And so uh, the idea was is that it's one of those things where the heroes have had their identities stolen and they've been magically tricked into thinking that they're just boring people living their boring lives in a suburb. And the, the trick is for them to then... Uh, discover that they're still their mage characters from previously right. and get back who they were. And Which so, both thematically works for mage and also is cool because you're returning to a place of power, not leaving a place of power. Exactly. Even then, though, uh, a couple of the players were like, 
I was sort of really getting into the quotidian lives of <laughs> these I'll bet people I trapped in the players. suburb. So, uh, you know, it's something that you uh, mess with at your peril. The idea that you don't know what your identity is uh, and you turn out to be a totally different person is perhaps not the best form of switcheroo. So another way to sort of have a genre mashup is uh, have it not turn on the question of who you actually are and, and that your character sheets are, you know, time to throw them over your shoulder. You're a robot. But uh, you could do a midway thing where it's like you are... You are fantasy characters, and then in session three, you go down into the dungeon thinking that you're going to uh, fight the centipede people, and instead, oh, look, the centipede people turn out to be robots. And now you've got a, uh, you know, fantasy versus science fiction uh, setup. You've got is, an Expedition of the Barrier Peak-style game. Where exactly. There's a, and, it, and the question is, and now it's like, okay, we know we're fantasy characters. I'm a bard. Chandra's a paladin, etc. Are we... Uh, primitive people who are in a generation ship and, and devolved. Are we game characters that were uploaded and forgotten about by AIs a zillion years ago? There's a million different explanations and suddenly it's a, it's a mystery and you can solve the mystery of the world. And if you're a clever GM, you will make solving the mystery of the world part of how you get all the uh, higher level magic items and spells that you want to get anyway as part of an F20 so that you don't set up a, oh, do we solve the mystery of the world or go on having fun as an F20 game? And it's sort of, uh, it's sort of the same thing. Although providing F20 fun in the form of dragons is great because the players are like, well, is this a, a magical beast? Is it a, a genetically created mutant? Is it an alien? What's going on? And that can again add that sort of frisson of, of excitement and newness to a uh, perhaps otherwise conventional setting. Right. And so uh, what, uh, and I think that the option of, you know, can we recover our old identities is one that gives the, I think the players more of a sense of, of choice. So uh, for example, uh, you know, if they discover that they are in Android bodies, but they still suspect that they're, identities have been taken and that there was a reality to their selves in the fantasy world and there's a chance of them getting back or uh, that uh, they then then the players decide do we want to keep being in this ro- with these robot bodies in this world and try and uh, you know do whatever f20 characters would do in the modern world once they bust out of Robo park you know do you want to or uh, do we just want to go back to, to that and so that if you present, the switcheroo so that there's an option of pursuing the new genre or uh, treating that as a change of pace and reverting, then you've got less of that sort of buy-in issue where instead of you just plunking them from their, the path they think they're on and then uh, moving them onto another path, you give them a fork in the road where they can choose uh, to remain in the genre they're in or to explore the, uh, the other genre. And so that basically moves the buy-in question so that it occurs after the mystery has been revealed. And so yeah. that gives you that chance to to play with the collision of these uh, two different radically contrasting sets of images while still uh, the players don't feel that they're being yanked from one thing to the other, but they they have a, an option. They can, uh, they can buy in or not during play. And uh, if there's one thing that we want to avoid on this podcast, it's being uh, taken from one segment and then just radically, with only a commercial separating them, move into a... Oh, wait, that's the entire premise of the show. Yeah, that's that's actually how we do things.
In the 1960s, the CIA hunted Yeti in Tibet, built aircraft that touched the edge of space, and experimented on mind control. But there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the FBI infiltrated occult movements, wiretapped congressmen, and winked at the mafia. Yeah, but there's more to that story. In the 1960s, the Marines invaded Cambodia, the Navy listened to the Pacific Deeps, and the Air Force covered up UFOs. Oh boy, is there more to that story. Those stories all touch the surface of the secret world, the poisonous, unnatural world of the Cthulhu mythos. A government program named Majestic tries to weaponize the unnatural. A government program named Delta Green tries to destroy the unnatural. In the fall of Delta Green, you play the agents of Delta Green, caught between your oath to America and your duty to humanity, caught between a world on fire and the icy cold of other dimensions. Written by Kenneth Height, The Fall of Delta Green adapts Arc Dream Publishing's Delta Green, the role-playing game, to the award-winning gumshoe engine. The Fall of Delta Green is a standalone game of standing alone against inevitable destruction. Delta Green falls in 1970. The world falls shortly thereafter. The Fall of Delta Green. Grab it in your store or from the Pelgrane Press website. It's Delta Green. It's the 1960s. In Gumshoe. What are you waiting for? The end of the world? So as uh, Patreon backers know, and in fact just uh, regular followers of our social media know, that every Tuesday uh, we... Uh, review in little capsule form all of the media that we've consumed in the preceding week in uh, Ken and Robin Consume Media, our weekly text feature. And uh, for Patreon backers, uh, you gain the additional advantage of letting us know uh, through our Tell Me More feature uh, what you would like to hear more about. And in this case, Kevin Maroney asks us to conjure up a mythology hat because he wants to know more about Ronald Hutton's The Witch. I read this recently, and Ken, you own it as well. Yes. So uh, Ronald Hutton is a a history prof at the University of Bristol. Uh, If you look him up on the internet. Also, if we were to bump into Ronald Hutton while we're in London, he would count, Ken, for our game where we played Spot the Doctors, where we count how many people. Yes, he's very much... Uh, one of the spot the doctor people. Yes. He, so he's clear, he's also Doctor Who, which I think is yeah. cheating for a history professor. Of course you know history. Right. You're a Doctor Who. But, but, but he, but he cleverly is specializing in the kind of history that Doctor Who is always proving wrong. <laughs> yes. He never gives it away by saying, well, actually it's just Daleks. Right. Yeah. It's just aliens. Sorry guys. Right. Um, and, uh, this is by no means his first work in addition to publishing all sorts of academic papers. He's, published a whole bunch of uh, books, and this one is sort of a grand summing up and moving forward of uh, a bunch of research, and is sort of a a uh, he's a skeptic of sweeping theses, yes. uh, but, uh, but worry not, this would be kind of a quasi-sweeping thesis. So, so the, the topic is uh, the witch in world culture, uh, and specifically uh, then taking insights from looking at this common. A belief element throughout the world and throughout history, and then seeing how that uh, then factored or didn't into the uh, European witch trial um, mania. And he kicks it off by talking about waves of scholarly consensus about what exactly happened uh, with uh, witch hysteria in the early modern period. And he sort of traces how uh, different eras of scholars have found uh, different views of this event which uh, sometimes can, to your surprise, it turns out, say more about the desires of the era in which the subject is studied than perhaps in the era itself. So 
initially, of course, there's the idea that the uh, practice of witchcraft was a disguised holdover of paganism and that this was a, a war of the uh, mostly urban uh, organized church against a rural movement of uh, of pagans that had survived for uh, uh, about, you know, more than a, a millennia. And that has uh, fallen into disfavor. And in reaction to that, the idea that there's sort of a grand theory that can explain everything, there was a counter-reaction. It's like, well, let's not study all cultures that believe in, in witches of some sort and try and create a, a commonality between them. That in and of, of itself is bad, so let's stop doing that. And uh, Hutton is sort of uh, coming in as a new wave and going, wait a minute, there's still stuff that we can learn if we look at individual cultures and we're not trying to prove that, for example, everything is shamanism secretly deep right. down. Because right. And there was a, and there was another wave, which he also talks about uh, in this book and in previous works of saying, oh, the witchcraft panics are just the institution of the centralized state. And they are fundamentally anti-feminist and anti-indigenous uh, uh, responses that have no basis in anything people actually thought. And that uh, was a very, very popular you know, beginning in the 1870s with the first bunch of anti-clerical histories and then running, uh, through the, the high watermark of Marxist historians. And again, Hutton demonstrates that that is also not the case, that, uh, the witch persecutions were basically gender neutral, that boy witches and girl witches both got, uh, uh railroaded and burned alive and that the witch panics existed in pre-capitalist states and in places that don't have states at all various um uh, uh tribal confederations and whatnot in uh Africa or Asia and so the notion of the witch as a cultural figure uh is what he is sort of coming back around to address as opposed to the uh machinery of the witchcraft panic which he i think correctly argues has been sort of uh examined to death right now and we need to sort of go back and say what do we what do we mean or rather what did they mean when they said which right and uh i think there's his examination uh shows some sort of interesting uh techniques that uh, we can use when we're looking at uh, source materials to ask ourselves what's really going on so for example uh you know he uh warns us against uh back projection against uh, people who are uh, trying to uh, find they have some other agenda, and so they're looking for the connections that they want to find. So, for example, I think most of our listeners uh, already know that the pagan survival theory uh, does not really hold water. As fun as it is. <laughs> yes, fun as it is. There's lots of things that are fun that turn out to be surprisingly not the case. In, in for example, the wild hunt. Uh, is not a thing, right? Or wasn't a thing until Jacob Grimm, uh, in part of his project to create a, a national mythology for the emerging national identity of this new thing called Germany, it kind of invented it. So there's a, a lot of other stuff that you may need to put in the fun closet and not in the real closet as uh, as we go through this uh, material, or also just that uh, things are often much uh, ideas are often much newer. Than we think they yes. are. He has a whole book called Stations of the Sun about how the uh, timeless holidays of the of Britain's pagan past go easily as far back as the mid seventeenth century. <laughs> <laughs> yes, um, and also things can be uh, maybe much more regionally specific than you think they are. So, for example, right. the witches familiar, uh, which we think of as you know in Standard. pop culture an absolute staple element of uh of uh, witch mythology well that's actually just 
in parts of Britain. And, you know, maybe some of the uh, British Isles, but not all of them. Yeah, it's mostly uh, Scots areas and areas near the Scots, it turns out, that have familiars. Right. So, as far as uh, his, don't call it a thesis thesis, so he's looking for what made the uh, witch hysteria uh, big and deadly in some areas, and uh, marginal uh, and uh, deadly if you were one of the people accused, but not a widespread uh, source of you know, injustice and death, or, or just sort of in other areas, eh, not so much, we don't worry about that. Um, he, first of all, looks sort of in a global sense of and finds that there are cultures that believe in witchcraft uh, and cultures that believe instead in the evil eye. And both of these are a response to the question of, why did this bad thing happen to me? Where the bad thing is a uh, hailstorm or that wipes out the crops or an earthquake that knocks down buildings or most often... A murin on my cattle? Yeah, or, uh, you know, it's, uh, an illness that either sweeps your livestock or or you. Or why did this person suddenly die? Uh, why uh, was my... Uh, why did my baby miscarry? Or uh, why was my uh, baby born ill or, or with a chronic condition of some kind? And so sometimes... People look at that uh, and go, well, it's obviously somebody did this to me. They used their magical powers to cause harm. We're going to find who that person is and either get them to relent, get them to remove the spell, uh, which is the policy that uh, operates in some areas, and, and then it's fine. You just get them to relent and they stop, and then that is solved. Or you accuse them of heresy and you burn them at the stake. On the other hand, there are other cultures that believe that all of these bad things happen because some people have the evil eye. And the difference between witchcraft and the evil eye is that uh, the uh, evil eye is something that you have involuntarily. You just sort of, you're kind of cursed and uh, you uh, uh, don't intend to uh, uh, cause stillbirths or uh, hailstorms or what have you. You just kind of do. And in order to protect yourself, you don't go and harm that person. Why would you do that? It's not their fault. Uh, instead, you uh, wear amulets and stuff to protect you from the evil eye. So there's still a uh, mechanism by which uh, believers in, in magic achieve uh, a sense of control over an arbitrary and sometimes damaging universe. But in one case, there's blame attached. In the other case, there isn't. And guess what? The one with the blame is the one where... People get burnt. And again, obviously, even in the, um, uh, in, in the, you know, magical world of, uh, the witches and evil eye, you have areas that have both. For example, southern Italy has both witchcraft and evil eye. Scotland has both witches and the evil eye. But it does tend to, in uh, Sumeria, uh, Babylonia had witches and the evil eye. So it, it tends to, create, uh, like you say, a dichotomy, and it's not even a, this area is evil eye, this area is witchcraft, it's more, today, we're explaining it with evil eye, maybe later down the road, after something changes society or, or makes us rethink, maybe, oh, it's going to turn out to have been witches all along. And, and another element that he sort of ascribes to, and so the question is, why then? Why did the, uh, the bulk of the witch trials occur basically within one long lifetime? And... Uh, his suggestion uh, is, uh, I think, without quite fully coming out and saying it, but he suggests that there's a, uh, a mythology that developed in the near the end of the Middle Ages that then metastasizes into something sinister uh, in the early Renaissance, and uh, the uh, it's about uh, visiting ladies 
or ladies of the forest. And initially, it's sort of a benign myth that uh, at certain times, uh, these uh, magical women will appear and invite you to a feast. And you'll uh, have your uh, troubles uh, leavened. And uh, and more importantly, food and drink. That's something you're thinking about a lot in the late Middle Ages. Uh, and uh, so uh, these sort of benign figures who uh, have some vague parallels to uh, the, the wild hunt or to uh, figures in pagan mythology, but in fact seem to be an independent myth structure that arose uh, uh, throughout Europe. And then eventually that turns into the visiting women are terrifying and they are, uh, uh, now they're, uh, uh, kissing the devil's arse and swearing, uh, eternal fealty and, uh, and harming people, uh, through their, uh, uh deadly magic. And so, uh, the, uh, one of the touch points that he proposes in addition to sort of broader social forces like the emerging, uh, battle between, uh, Catholicism and Protestantism in the sense that Everything is up for grabs in, in what people believe, but also that this uh, sort of uh, harmless myth turns uh, into uh, a dark parody of itself. And, and he talks about a couple of pre-existing monster figures in Germany and in Italy. Uh, basically, the Romans believed in a bird-like a woman or a woman who could turn into a bird and would fly around and drink your blood or otherwise mess with you at night. And this seems to be a Mediterranean uh, sort of a monster, uh, possibly connected to the Lilitu of old Babylonia that was a bird-like woman that flew around and would drink your baby's breath at night. Then that's the Striga, which is, of course, very similar to the word for which Strega in Italian. And then and there is, is the Sturge, a, the D&D creature that yes. uh, flies around and sucks your blood at low levels. Yes. And uh, there is a German myth of a uh, cannibal woman who sort of uh, lurks by the side of the road and eats you. And this seems to be a good old-fashioned troll, just like you see in uh, the rest of Norse mythology, except in Germany, it got um, domesticated a bit and became, instead of this horrifying thing up on the mountain, it became a creepy old woman that lived by the side of the road and, and would eat you if you uh, looked at her wrong. And that it sounds like one of those things that becomes either why you don't give money to a beggar or why you better give money to a beggar. And, you know, sort one of those sort of dual use folktales. And, uh, the, I think Hutton's argument is that once, you know, uh, the, the Catholic church starts losing its grip and he traces the witch trials geographically to a big sort of a fracture zone in Roman Catholicism, going back to the Vodens and, uh, the Cathars, which is something that Trevor Roper and other historians of European witchcraft have, have noticed is that witch trials tend to happen in this sort of conflict zone between Catholic and Protestant Europe or between Catholic and heretical Europe in, in the pre and pre Protestant era. Um, that as you start to sort of churn this up, and also I suspect as the Renaissance and printing starts putting different cultures into touch, you have these individualized myths of scary women meld suddenly in with this uh, n- uh night walking woman figure and become, oh my God, 
there's scary people out there and they're up to something. And I'll bet it's because the Pope is weakened the church or because these Protestants are weakening the Pope that this is allowed and that that's why suddenly that sort of belief system snaps into place. And again, it's not uh, contra the Marxist historians, usually a state action. Usually it's driven by the local people who then appeal to the count or to the church and say, do something about all these witches. And sometimes the counter, the church says, all right, we're going to look into it. And they put together a blue ribbon commission and they come back with a big old report and they say, there are no witches problem solved. We've worn commissioned your witch problem. And in other cases they say, you know what? We haven't burned a bunch of people alive in a while. Let's go do that because the people are right. And so they, you know, are become partners in this witch hysteria, but that it's very, very seldom the sort of, uh, witch finder general mode where some guy is sent down from corporate headquarters to burn all your area witches. That does not seem to have been a thing that happened that, that often. Right. In fact, yeah, corporate headquarters pretty early on, the, the central uh, Catholic church anyway went, wait a minute. This, these are all based on accusations of other people who've been accused. And much of this sounds outlandish and crazy. I don't think any of this is going on. And where's the standards of evidence? Uh, let's not do this. Uh, which is, you know, the complete opposite of the pop culture, uh, version of, of what they thought was going on. And, and in fairness, it took them about 70 years after the publication of the, uh, Malleus Maleficarum to officially say, stop using the Malleus Maleficarum. But still, that's pretty fast for the church. Yeah, that, that's fast work for the church. And, uh, as you uh, indicate, it's often a local secular authorities who are worried about uh, a popular demand for punishment of witches who are much more likely, although not exclusively so, to uh, kill a lot of people and that they're responding to a pressure placed on their political position by a popular demand coming not just from men, but also from women, because one of the major concerns about uh, witches is that they are going to harm your children, that they're either going to right. uh, eat your current children or uh, replace them with goblins or, 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 you know, uh, cause miscarriages. So that it's the idea of it being a war on women. Uh, if you zoom in, it's like, well, it's actually uh, a war between women as much as it is, uh, uh, anything else. So it's, uh, it's a well worth picking up. It's, uh, very readable for a scholarly book. As are all of Ronald Hutton's works. And, uh, uh, I, uh, read it for pleasure all the way through and it's, it's full of, other uh, nuggets that you can steal for uh, your campaign. His uh, survey of different witch beliefs from around the world is just redolent uh, with uh, uh, fascinating detail. And it's the, uh, you know, because on this broader structure of the idea that there are people who can use magic to, to, to deal harm is, uh, you know, the details are always different from one culture to the next. And those are often uh, uh, quite fascinating. And you'll also learn uh, that, uh, the idea that anyone practicing anything that seemed like magic uh, being accused is actually also mistaken, that there was a distinction made between people who were surface magicians, people who did useful magic, as long as they never used their magic to harm anybody, uh, that was fine. It's, in most jurisdictions, it was an accusation of harm, just as if, if you murder somebody uh, through witchcraft, you were just as likely to be uh, pursued and punished for it as if you murder them with a rake. Right. And that's a yeah. sort of a, a distinction that, that also I think is still uh, lost because of the earlier association of the idea that the old pagan religion is being attacked. And that makes sense 
in that framework, but that framework uh, no longer holds. Yeah. <laughs> framework turns out to have never been true and was made up by weirdos and folklorists. Uh, well, uh, now that we've uh, dispatched a framework, it's time for us to move through this commercial to uh, whatever framework lies on the other side. The Best of Asphagel is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic Choose Your Adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Astfageln on drive through. Protect this podcast from the switcheroo of not existing anymore by joining such Patreon backers as... Louis Sylvester. Michael Manival. Phil Bailey. Ruth Tillman. And Steve Sigetti. It's time once again for Ken and Robin to recycle audio. And if you've been listening in sequence, you know that we have been running content from our panels at Carcosicon in Poland, and we have now moved into our uh, Yellow King Mythos panel. We're partway through this, and as this uh, excerpt picks up, we're talking about the power of inference as a horror technique, and uh, that Chambers is a, a pioneer of that, and it's something, one of the things that Lovecraft very much picks up uh, from him and amplifies, and then we go on to discuss how uh, Lovecraft and then his uh, heirs uh, began the process of uh, creating a broader mythos around the four related chamber stories. So yeah, it's the power of inference that makes uh, the Yellow King uh, so interesting, and the uh, because it is working on you to uh, force you to add uh, your own imagination to it, and uh, it is the power of uh, that inference that then uh, influences Lovecraft. You can see definitely the. Uh, roots of the idea of the Necronomicon and the other uh, occult tomes and the way that they work upon the minds of the uh, characters in Lovecraft stories as deriving from uh, chambers and uh, also the idea of interlinked stories that have that all seem to occur in the same universe. So to go back to uh, one of the stories, the the mask is just a story of a weird uh, petrifying chemical that seems to petrify someone and at the end after disaster is struck it turned out they're not quite so petrified after all but it's your Romeo and Juliet sort of ending and other than the fact that the book is referred to there's again through inference we can say oh well the the presence of the book in this universe is possibly what has made this weird science possible but other than that, it's a very loose sort of a connective, allusive way of creating um, a sense of, of horror. And 
this gives us a lot for other people to build on. And the first, uh, you know, the reason we are here at an event called CarcosaCon <laughs> talking about this is because Lovecraft uh, wrote about it in supernatural horror and literature. Right. And then his uh, disciple, August Derleth, decided, let's turn this into a more cthulhu sort of thing. Uh, let's turn uh, Haster, which uh, is referred to as a just a, a star that is possibly interesting and a Wakran character in another sort of disconnected story, and let's turn him into a, a, a mythos entity on the order of Cthulhu and uh, Sothagio and so forth, and let's make him a giant worm. So what's what's the Lovecraftian version of uh, the Yellow King and Carcosa and Haster become. I mean, the the other thing that Lovecraft does, and this is a direct borrowing from Chambers, and is very clearly one, in A Whisper in Darkness, there is a segment where uh, Akeley is recounting his discussions with the uh, with Amigo, and he says, he explained to me the mysteries of, and then there's a long list of magic names, and among them are Beth Mura, which is Dunsany, um, some uh, Clark Ashton Smith stuff and Chambers, and he mentions Eon. He mentions Haster, the unnameable, not the same thing. Haster and the Magnum Innomiandum, which is uh, the thing that cannot or should not be named, depending on your Latin. And he drops those uh, Chambersian names as his little hat tip. But the notion of a list of allusions that is intended to convey a greater mythology is actually something Chambers does in Repair of Reputations because there's a sequence in which uh, Mr. Wilde, the dwarfish villain of the story, is expa- expatiating on the nature of the universe to his um, uh, stooge killer Vance uh, and lists all of these uh, wonderful imaginary names from the Yellow Mythos, Uot and Aldones and uh, Yatil and, and et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And um, uh, goes through this this sort of list of names, and Lovecraft sees that and sees how well it works because they're never explained, and says, "Well, I can list names, <laughs> boy, can I?" And of course, the list in Whisper is about twice as long as the list in Repair, but that is the sort of hook in which Derleth says, "Oh, look, Aster is now got canonicity because Lovecraft has mentioned him in this list of Mego mysteries." that is being unveiled to Akeley. So now we can say, yes, he is a great old one of the of the stature of Cthulhu. And Derleth wanted the whole mythos to be called the Haster mythos, and he wrote to Clark Ashton Smith and said, wouldn't this be a great idea if we kept doing what Lovecraft did and we call it the Haster mythos? And Smith wrote back and said, you can do what you want, but I'm Clark Ashton Smith. And Haster was invented by Robert W. Chambers, so it wouldn't really be an honor of Lovecraft anyway. But nice try. Yeah. And so Derleth basically, version two was to call it the Cthulhu Mythos. And that name, of course, stuck because Cthulhu is legitimately central or as central as, you know, any of the other main trinity to Lovecraft's uh, cosmology. Right. And it's clear who he is. Right. He's, uh, there's a visual image. Mm-hmm. It's got good branding. Yep. All those things. And uh, so when Derleth writes about Haster... What are, what are we talking about? Uh, there's a the, the first one is called The Return of Haster, and it's in a story in which a, a, a wizard has made a compact with Haster to get uh, knowledge and power. And Haster, apparently, then, instead of taking possession of your soul, he takes possession of your body, and he sort of grows his sluggy worm form into the wizard and turns him into a hideous being. And then, uh, as Durlet's imagination gets paradoxically more cosmic... He then presents Haster as this great uh, air elemental 
that is uh, part of the the iconography of of his elemental conception of the mythos, and he's sort of Cthulhu's half brother and part rival uh, in various stories, and in in one case. Uh, I believe that there's a story where there, you know, Haster is being summoned and there's a great to do about what to do about that and they have to call on, uh, Cthulhu, who is another imaginary god that he made up because, oh my god, we need a fire elemental. And so he, in order to destroy the imaginary Haster that he has created, he deploys imaginary Cthulhu. Um, Unlike that totally real Cthulhu in right, the Right, yeah, exactly, right, the, the real stuff. So there's, um, a attempt to cosmicize Haster, but in a Lovecraftian direction, as opposed to the very elusive and barely present Haster that's in uh, Chambers. And this is another sort of sideways, uh, sort of interesting tracing of uh, cultural pop culture concepts through different properties, because in first edition deities and demigods, so for D and D players of a certain vintage, uh, they got the version of that book that had uh, uh, Moorcock's uh, uh, gods and. Uh, Lovecraft gods in it uh, before the Alzheimer sent the mean letter. Yes, <laughs> and uh, one of the ways that uh, Haster was described in that is if you say his name three times, he appears, and he's got four hundred hit points, and he'll kill you, and he'll kill you. And of course, that uh, created a whole uh, many uh, kids around many tables uh, entered into a world of dysfunctional play by saying Haster three times, having a four hundred hit point in creature order showing to up. Nuke the campaign. Yes, and, uh, and that is of course because. Durleth calls him Haster the Unspeakable, which is Durleth's translation of Magnum Inomiandum, and Guy Jack, Guy Gax, or Jim Ward, I think, who's actually who wrote it, uh, says, well, what does Unspeakable mean in D&D? Well, it means if you speak his name, a 400-point monster comes and kills you. Um, so that's a, a, a really a Baroque, weird uh, result of, uh, you know, several layers of extrapolation from Chambers to uh, Durleth. Uh, toward to uh, a whole bunch of uh, uh, teenage DMs across. To me. Yes, yes. Yeah, <laughs> um, now, in uh, it is the realm of gaming that has uh, uh, done uh, a lot of the, the next generation work after Durleth of turning Lovecraft into a, uh, a mythos and therefore uh, to turn the Yellow King, the King in Yellow, into a, a figure in Lovecraftian lore. And he becomes... He starts to move back through his appearances in uh, uh, Cthulhu role-playing products back into something more of the conception that I was indicating earlier because I think the Haster as worm-like possessor of sorcerers who is also a wind elemental is somewhat less interesting, uh, less uh, rich and fun to play with than just the idea of a a sinister king-like figure with a, a terrible, uh, you know, human face with a mask. And I think part of that is that that allows the king in yellow to become not only a symbol of uh, shifting realities, which he often is in uh, latter-day Cthulhu mythos fiction and adventure gaming, but also a figure, even more so than Yarlathotep, who's actually uh, interested in being a villain. You know, as he destroys he says, this is what you get for confronting a living god. Um, also, that's a, an idea, of course, that uh, Lovecraft picks on hugely, is malignant yeah. gods that right. I've made up, mm-hmm. not gods from mythology, are interesting figures of horror. Yeah. So that's that's another huge thing. And that sort of comes from Dunsinay, but also... Right. Uh, I mean, the Lovecraft doesn't read Chambers until 1927. So anything that he's written before 1927 is just drinking out of the same well. Then after that, in the same way that he didn't read Mackin until 
25 or so. And then he reads Mackin, and you can just see him going and looking at the lurking fear and saying, well, that's what I thought I was doing, and now I'm going to do it right and write The Rats in the Walls. And in the same way that he reads, um, he, he's written a lot of stuff before 1927, and he goes back and he looks at it, and he says, oh, my Necronomicon was just stupid, and after 1927, the presentation of the, of the, mytho- of the mythology becomes different. But... For example, a maltheistic cosmology predates his reading of Chambers, but reading Chambers lets him sort of focus it and drill down and have a maltheistic cosmology that begins to have emotional effects on the characters as opposed to simply making them go crazy or not even particularly respond to it at all, just sort of be briefly amazed. So he writes Call of Cthulhu, for example, right around the same time that he's reading uh, Chambers. He outlined it when he was in New York in, New York in, in 25. He started it in 26. I think he may have even finished Call of Cthulhu right before reading Chambers. But Call of Cthulhu, while it opens the door to his mythos, Chambers is sort of the guy who shows him how to deploy that, that weapon that he's just forged. Right, and Call of Cthulhu is very much building out the idea of uh, what if there's an insane uh, or malignant god and people worship him and what does that do and the, you know, the cultists... Uh, you can look at that as a parallel with the uh, blackmailed conspirators and repair of reputations. Uh, and so uh, the king in yellow then takes, as we use him in Cthulhu mythos, fiction, and adventure, allows us a more accessible uh, evil god who actually has an interest in destroying us. Because uh, if you uh, you know follow the full uh, thematic weight of Lovecraft, the thing that is terrifying about Cthulhu and Azazoth and Yogg-Sazoth so, uh, and so forth is that we perceive them as malign, and they become and they their effects become malign, especially when uh, robed idiots decide to worship them. But that in their purest form, uh, if we could fully encompass who they were, uh, they are just pure indifference. They are our in- insignificance. Um, but that actually uh, is a challenge uh, for an antagonist in a in a story right. uh, that they uh, you know the the real Cthulhu, not the one that we envision uh, with our limited minds, but the real full Cthulhu, he doesn't even know we're here. Let alone he's not asking cultists to do anything. He's not you know when the stars align, sure he'll rampage across the earth and devour it. But that's not because he has anything particular in for us. It's just, you know, the Earth seems tasty. Right. and he's the next stage in planetary evolution. Yeah. Um, eaten by Cthulhu. Have you found the yellow sign? The King in Yellow. Robert W. Chambers' unearthly book has inspired millions of readers since the death of the Gilded Age. A beautiful new edition from Arc Dream Publishing brings fresh potency to its stories of poisonous romance. This deluxe hardback features gold foil embossing and a leather cover in the black snakeskin pattern that Chambers described. A foreword by John Scott Tynes sets the stage. Annotations by Kenneth Height elucidate the secrets and histories of every tale. Samuel Araya's full-color plates and charcoal illustrations evoke the otherworldly weirdness of Carcosa. Every print order comes with the PDF digital edition. The annotated King in Yellow insinuates itself into our reality in July 2019. The ball begins. It is time to don your mask. Join the masquerade at shop.arcdream.com. 
Com. The sparkle of snow across our Orthicon tubes, or perhaps the flat blue stare of our Xbox One, welcome us to the beautiful plasmatic television hut. And in the television hut, we are, we are beclamored, Robin, by uh, Patreon backers, who of course are welcome to beclamor us. Uh, but among them are Jacob Burzma, Trungbui, Jake Moss, and Stuart Robertson, who demand, nay, exclaim. They say, tell me more. They say, tell, tell us more. Tell me more. Make, make it go away. Make the bad man not have ruined my dragon show. And <laughs> I, of course, am here to say, your dragon show was pre-ruined. It was always garbage. But Robin, I think, has a kinder, more beautiful heart than me and uh, actually watched Game of Thrones instead of giving up on it when it was apparent that it was yet more botchkoized nonsense, this time in a War of the Roses fanfic, and that uh, the four or five characters who were at all worth watching were barely even going to be on screen and uh, parachuted out early, although I did wind up seeing it a lot because my I have uh, friends that would hold watch parties, and my wife, uh, my lovely wife Sheila, would go to the watch parties, and so I would accompany her and sit in the corner and do something else. But every now and again, I would look up and see yet another clumsily executed plot point be thuddingly deployed and be confident in my initial assessment. Robin, you, as I mentioned, were kinder. Do you want to start with why you liked Game of Thrones in the first place? Uh, well, first of all, in uh, in our botchkoized era, the, the thing that uh, keeps people watching are vivid characters charismatically portrayed by cool actors. And by so, lovely actors. Right. And again, I would have had no objection to a show that was entirely Amelia Clark setting fire to the show's budget. Right. I'm a thousand percent. I've said that in print. Right. Uh, the thing that to me seemed uh, interesting about the show, and let's asterisk this, is I'm talking about the show. I haven't read the book, so we're just strictly talking I've about I've read a hundred pages of the first book and had much the same response. Right. So the question that the show has always laid out before us is uh, how much of it is revisionist? And how much of it is aspirational? Because, of course, our Patreon backers have asked us to break things down and not just talk about why we liked or didn't like it, but trying to analyze it. And so right. I think this is our first lens to look at it is these different modes of storytelling. So most uh, genre pop culture is uh, aspirational in that you are uh, rooting for particular characters to succeed, that it is primarily wish fulfillment and that you want to see your uh, wishes surrounding the characters satisfied in a superficially surprising way. Right. You want to see Raylan gun down gun thugs. Right. And the revisionist storytelling takes an existing genre and uh, spins it in a, a, a darker direction that comments upon it. So the classic example there is the spaghetti western, uh, which infuses the apparently optimistic and all-American genre of the Western, and apparently is doing a lot of work in that sentence, if anyone has seen yeah. <laughs> Anthony Mann movies or The Searchers, but uh, that right. it... Or stage right, that, it, that it punctures uh, the uh, the myths of uh, of the genre and introduces a, a darker uh, frame to that and causes you to question the mythology encouraged by the genre. So, And, and again, as our as our cowboy examples point up, Good drama is doing both. Good drama is both providing you a thing to hope for and a thing to think about, uh, interrogate your own hopes even. Right. And so in Justified, we absolutely know that Raylan is justified in gunning down gun thugs, but 
we worry that he is becoming a sociopath and that he is unable to connect to genuine human feeling because of the very gun thug gunning that we are rooting for in the first place. And in the Americans, for example, speaking of peak television that everyone should watch instead of their stupid dragon show, they are Soviet sleeper agents, so they are bad, but they are portrayed engagingly by wonderful actors and have lived human experiences and uh, concerns that we can't help but empathize with. And so in this one, the revisionist and aspirational are sort of tumped on their head because we know we shouldn't be rooting for them, but we totally are, but we still shouldn't. And then they also have the, oh, they're not just glamorous spies, they're serial killers and have all these other horrible problems going on in their lives. And so those are twisted around in a braid. It's not that good shows are revisionist and bad shows are aspirational. Good shows ideally incorporate both. I mean, you can have a good show that is purely one or purely the other, but I don't think you can last very long purely revisionist. Right. And a purely aspirational show is The Lone Ranger. And if, you know, 30 minutes, The Lone Ranger has shot the bad guys in the finger and, and we're done, but that's not that's not viscerally, uh, that, that, that's not permanent art. That's just entertainment. Well, specifically here, though, the fantasy, right. the high fantasy genre yes. uh, was itching for a revision, uh, as we say, um, and that uh, more so than uh, almost any contemporary genre, uh, because of the footprint of Tolkien and I think also the uh, sense of sort of uh, nostalgia and old timiness that a lot of the fans bring to it, the uh, idea of you know, uh, even though Michael Moorcock uh, exists commenting on the whole sort of sword and sorcery genre, that the high fantasy genre uh, was really set up for someone to take a run, not only at superficial values. So uh, we have a series now where fantasy characters swear uh, nearly as copiously as uh, the characters on Deadwood did. And we have uh, acknowledgments of, uh, you know, the, the baser elements of, a, a pseudo medieval world so that you don't have the Tolkien-esque good versus evil uh, set up, but rather you have flawed, recognizable people uh, in a world uh, where, there all, where there is also evil, but those evil people are human and they are acting out on their human impulses rather than being, uh, you know, the representation of some objective force of, of good or evil in the world. And so, and the other specifically, revisionist thing about the show is the idea that characters who you think are your viewpoint characters are the good guys uh, can die at any time or such is the impression created by first of all the uh, death at the end of the first season of, uh, of Ned Stark the Sean Bean character and then of course the Red Wedding is sort of the absolutely most yeah, the classic yeah example of oh no all these characters can just suddenly die without a lot of Warning or preparation. And, and one of the other things in the show that was intentional, I believe, is that even characters who begin with your sympathy can turn into bad characters who do bad things because they feel forced to or they run out of options or it becomes easy to do the bad thing. And so a character like uh, Jamie Lannister, who you might have thought, well, he's a good man and a bad job as the story progresses, like this guy's just a sick bad person and right. I hope he dies. Well, he starts right? it pretty quickly chucking a kid out the window. So, right. And, and so the question is, so that's the expectation created is that, Oh, this world, it's, it's sort of like history and people that you think can, are going to be important for a long time. They can just keel over like Alexander getting pneumonia or, mm -hmm. uh, you know, King Richard falling off his horse or, or what have you that, or, you know, Lincoln can suddenly be shot. And, yep. and so the question that the show has always, that have been always hanging over the show that would be resolved by its ending is, 
is the ending also going to be an ending in which the arbitrary nature of history or just good old-fashioned tragedy come into play? Or are those big moments, the death of Sean Bean and then the Red Wedding, are those basically just the act one low points that make you root all the harder for the heroes and that in the end it will turn out to be aspirational wish fulfillment. For, for those plucky Stark kids to just right. pull it together and start a band and save the teen center. And so uh, I think one of the things that causes people to recoil from the ending is that instead of being purely revisionist and having, say, a Shakespearean ending where, you know, a dragon and a uh, princess meet and everyone ends in mincemeat, they decide to split the difference and have an revisionist ending for one of the characters who over the course of 70 hours, they've encouraged you to love and root for. And it turns out, Oh no, she's Hitler. (laughs) And, uh, and she turns into Hitler real fast uh, due to the telescoping of the uh, final uh, season. season. Um, And I don't want to dwell on that too much because it's the obvious thing that everybody says. We've been asked not to address the obvious things, but um, so it's clearly poorly executed in that, uh, you know, in one episode, it's uh, the Danny everybody is encouraged to identify with and, and root for. And then by the end of that very episode, uh, she goes blood simple and wipes out a whole uh, city full of people with her nuclear dragon for no good reason. And then the next episode, she's Hitler. In fairness, for no good reason is the reason everyone did everything in that show. Even more so, though, in this yeah, case, right. in order to get there, they right. fall back on the weakest possible uh, character motivation, which is, oh, turns out she's crazy. And she just suddenly goes crazy. Uh, and then she's Hitler. So uh, the question is, would that, if well executed, have been a good idea? And uh, and so, uh, and my position is, no, it is not a good idea because they, they try to uh, do the old, well, we're implicating the audience thing, right? They have Tyrion give a speech mm-hmm. saying, here's all these other list of times when uh, Danny did awful. horrible, brutal things. But we rooted for her because we love her and those people were evil. But what happens when she does it to people who are not evil? But first of all, again, doesn't make any sense that she does this. A a more interesting version of that would have been she has to do something horrible and brutal in order to win. And then that weighs on her afterwards. But instead they go for the, oh, no, she's she's Maleficent and uh, and and she's Stalin and she's Hitler and she's all these other things just all of a all of a sudden. But. Is it actually a useful thing? Are you actually making a point by having uh, 69 episodes of television where through the performance and the scripting and the framing and, and the music and every other element of cinema, you have made us as the audience uh, care about this person simply in order to yank that away from us. And is that I would point out that if you were making a show about Stalin and Hitler in which they spent 69 hours not mass murdering people and the last hour mass murdering people, you could say we just decided to do the first 69 hours about pre 1942 Hitler and the last hour is the Holocaust. But you would have to demonstrate something that would lead to that. And I would point out that Hitler did not suddenly go mad and order the Holocaust. That was part of Hitler's personality to begin with. So even if you're saying, but Hitler, 
Even Hitler isn't Hitler in that sense, right? He doesn't suddenly go crazy and murder a bunch of people. That's for people in Greek tragedies to do. Uh, and that's literally in, in the Greek tragedy signaled as the act of the gods reaching down and, and causing them to do it. Her, Heracles kills his kids, not because Heracles has got PTSD from his labors. Heracles kills his kids because Hera drives him bananas. That's why. And again, the Greeks saw that there was bad motivation. And this whole point of this show is there aren't any gods that anything people do is on them. And so uh, madness as a motivation betrays that in a lot of other different ways, in addition to also, as you say, being fairly weak storytelling. Right. Um, and so for uh, us as storytellers, when we're looking to not do what, what uh, wound up happening here, uh, it's a question of understanding the expectations that you're setting up and, uh, first of all, deciding to consciously create and then betray expectations I don't think is really fruitful at all because you're cheating. You you created those expectations. The audience yeah. didn't do that. You did. You're you're basically doing some version of the shadowy, you know, Mr. Johnson. Oh, I hope that this shadow run goes well. Right. And that's boring. It's boring story. It's it's every bad spy movie. What the CIA betrayed them? Right. I certainly did not see that coming either through my knowledge of bad spy movies or my knowledge of actual CIA operations. And so a, a satisfying ending rhymes with the beginning. It. Uh, it satisfies the expectations that we, the storytellers, have created uh, in a way that may be may seem surprising, but also satisfies those expectations. And so, a uh, shock surprise—just something completely coming in from left field—is uh, uh, always going to be profoundly unsatisfying, no matter how much you set it up. Right? They did lay all the groundwork for it, but because it is profoundly unsatisfying, people were profoundly. Unsatisfied, unsatisfied by it. Um, and yeah. so, uh, don't pull that trick. It's not a, a, a useful or a fun uh, trick to pull. And the other thing is make sure that, that in your expectations, you're not leading the audience to anticipate a more interesting resolution than the one that you're actually going <laughs> yeah. to provide. Yeah. Um, and right. so this is, the show is called Game of Thrones. And up until the point where the books run out, it is substantially about politics and intrigue, um, more successfully for me than for you. Um, but after the books run out, it turns into uh, about war and action sequences, and the characters lose a, a lot of their uh, their through lines and they're uh, diminished in particular. They uh, all drop uh, 25 to 50 IQ points. And the characters who are all established. <laughs> and, and they did not have those to spare. Right. That was, they were not coming off a, you know, a genius situation. But <laughs> some of the characters like Varys and Tyrion are portrayed as, uh, or Littlefinger are portrayed as relatively skillful uh, operators who They're aren't just able making, to outwit the halfwits. They aren't just making true. blunder after blunder after blunder. Uh, and, in order to have smart characters, I think Tyrion kind of is, but that's again, that's getting back in the weeds. Anyway, right? Yes, but uh, <laughs> there, there, it's not incredible that he is thought of as a smart character who gets to be right. the advisor. Yeah. And the, the difference is that you can't write smart characters if you can't write good plot obstacles for them to overcome. Yeah. And the procedural element of uh, plot obstacle uh, construction uh, just vanishes when the books run out. And that is another big problem. And, and so, uh, but it isn't just that, that the uh, showrunners seem to not understand a lot of the characters. And so Brienne of Tarth, for example, gets totally thrown away from being a, uh, you know, strong, independent, brave uh, warrior woman to suddenly 
oh, she's a, a virgin who uh, finally gets it on with Jamie and she's mooning after him and she's sad that he's dead and she's uh, writing, uh, you know, we last see her writing Jamie's story in pseudo medieval tiger beat. Um, and so again and again, you see, uh, and, and in fact, the actors, uh, some of them more, uh, coded than others have indicated that they've been unhappy with the way that their characters, uh, you know, came down in, in conception and execution, uh, yeah. when, when the books ran out. Um, now I don't want to indicate that the previous rest of the show was a perfect masterpiece. And then it, you know, radically dropped off a cliff that there were a lot of, uh, storytelling problems, uh, particularly with just a lot of storylines that turn out not to matter one whit. That if you mm. were to take the 72 and a half hours of the show and cut out everything that is irrelevant to the ending of, of the episode, you would be leaving out vast swaths of stuff. And in fact, not just like the snake women, <laughs> when there's right. a period where we're interested in the snake women for some reason, uh, but also like the White Walkers <laughs> and the whole fight. Yeah. The, that's all turns out to be completely irrelevant and unnecessary, except as a mechanism to briefly have the Starks allied with Danny. And since that falls apart essentially immediately in the new accelerated pacing of the show, uh, you could have gotten there. You know, in, in less than seventy-two hours, shall we say? And, and again, the, the the war with the the White Walkers could have been portrayed as because it did lose her one of her dragons. So it's the first indication that her dragons are also mortal and that they're a wasting asset and that it's a use them or lose them situation. There are all kinds of ways you could have taken what they did and made it not stupid. Right. Um, I don't think those people were the people to do that, as I believe you're indicating. Um, but it's not that. Any given plot element, even Danny burning down King's Landing, is inherently a wrong plot element. It's just that they were all badly mishandled, I would argue, from the jump. And you would argue uh, increasingly once they lost the guidance of St. George and, and had to settle on their on their mere mortal brains of, of telling stories. And again, I, I have no uh, brief with the, uh, the, the D&D guys. Um, I'm sure that they're, that they're lovely human beings, but they do not strike me as people who are super capable of telling a procedural story in any of their previous work. Right. And the implication of the title, Game of Thrones, uh, does imply that the ending is going to significantly be about politics. So if we can right. imagine another dimension where Danny becomes queen uh, through an atrocity, but one that makes sense within that context. And then the following season is all about how do she and the Starks all fall apart and then wind up in, in tragedy. And there is actual political maneuvering, right? It's the, uh, you know, what would happen the next day is the interesting thing. Yeah. And the, it's the, how long does Tyrion wait before betraying her right. season? Or, right? or, 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 or more to the point, Sansa, right? right and yeah. that would be, right. The thing that seems to be being set up, uh, at least part of the way through is, oh, there's a, a bunch of people who we really care about and there's only one throne. And they're going mm. to have to destroy each other over it. And yeah. turning her into uh, a supervillain, uh, turning Danny into a supervillain, uh, just obviates all of that um, much more interesting direction that it uh, right. It, it cheapens it. Yeah, it, absolutely, and and skips the tough part. Right. And also, very briefly, the final episode also cheapens the idea of the show having some kind of interesting theme because the the theme that is being put forward through most of it is. There are people who are brutal and terrible who have power in part uh, because they are brutal and terrible and in part because they inherited it. Is it possible, the series starts to ask us, to 
have some sort of nobility and still win. Not the naive, trusting, or self-righteous nobility that gets uh, Ned killed or uh, and then later leads to the Red Wedding, but is there somewhere in between that? And, of course, the answer the series comes up with finally in the end is what we need instead of hereditary monarchy, which is bad because most hereditary monarchs are insane due to incest, uh, is actually what we need is an oligarchy. And everything will work out, especially when that oligarchy picks a three-eyed raven king who's been secretly manipulating events behind the scene the whole time and whose powers have never been uh, explained. And it uh, seems weird. That's our happy ending. See you around, folks. Arya's going to sail to the West, because no one's ever thought to do that before. In fairness, if I was Arya Stark, I'd sail as far away from this stupid story as I possibly could. <laughs> and I wouldn't have waited till season eight right. either. But the, the <laughs> idea of this is the answer to all the questions that the season posed is that so much of that final episode just seems arbitrary because it doesn't rhyme with what has previously been established as the central questions of the show. So, right. uh, so the, the takeaways here are and that even if, even if the notion is that Bran arranged everything so that he would be King, you never see that. So it's not even about Bran doing all this horrible stuff to be King. It's Bran just sort of sitting in the snow for 90 million hours. And then suddenly at the end, Oh, just as I planned all along, I'm king. Right. Because n- no one was rooting for that outcome. Yes. <laughs> that outcome does not right. seem particularly convincing. Uh, so even the, even the aspirational part of it where the Starks win is sort of like, really? We, we sat through 72 it, hours. It, it's watered down right. in many so, ways. So to, to, to sum up, uh, the having a character do a major heel tar- turn because they're suddenly insane is weak writing. Uh, that forgetting what is, uh, interesting and compelling about your characters is a big problem. Forgetting what the expectations of your audience are toward your characters and your story, of course, is an indication that you've gone way off track. And forgetting the full through line of your uh, uh, story and what it seems to be driving at in uh, favor of an essentially uh, sort of uh, kind of arbitrary outcome. Well, we haven't even got to the weird tonal shifts where right after the big, what is supposed to be the big final tragic moment then they're sort of yucking it up uh with that very cynical scene where you know uh samwell proposes democracy and all the rest of the characters including the putatively sympathetic ones just have a big yuck at that and that's just a a profoundly cynical moment in a show that and it's you know there is sort of a wink to the audience but it's cynical in a way that the show has never been before it's been bleak uh, but it's never been that uh just sort of uh, cynical so i guess if, if you like oligarchy, uh, uh, maybe we'll continue to like uh, uh, where Game of Thrones ends up. And, and we've certainly demonstrated the history of Poland demonstrates that an elective kingship is the best kind of kingship. <laughs> yeah. That it's never immediately set upon by powerful neighbors and dismembered. That doesn't happen. So uh, that is uh, my attempt anyway at a, a more analytical set of lessons to to take from that. And uh, and I, I guess if you, you know, if you love the show and you're happy with the ending, you stop listening uh 15 minutes ago. Uh, so right. those of yeah. you who are still listening, uh, this is the point where I tell you that there's going to be another episode much like this one one week from today. 
Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Pelgrane Press. Ask the Gelm. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Robin. Don't let this podcast sail off into the West. Join such Patreon backers as... Tristan Knight. Drew Clowry. Urs Blumentritt. Jacques Devillier. And Nate Merritt. Festoon yourself with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. I have ordered 12 of our latest design, Valkyrie Cat. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs>